Good morning. My name is Mike Overstreet. I am the teaching pastor here, and I'm really excited to have you this Sunday. I'm going to be teaching our message today, and I'm just going to jump in. See, we've been going through a series called 12 Words, and what we've been looking at in this series are 12 essentials of spirituality, the basics, the foundation of what it means to live a spiritual life. We've been looking at things like fear and doubt and how to get rid of those to get back to things like release and trust. And we've been using a metaphor of boxes, of cleaning house. What are the things in our faith that we build up over the course of our lives, the junk that gets packed away in closets that we forget that we're holding on to, that we need to unpack declutter, throw out, so we can get back to the basics, back to what the spiritual life was meant to be. And this week, we're actually marking a shift in our journey. You see, up until this point, we've been talking about a lot of practices and ideas that are meant to get us ready to heal. Things like self-honesty and confession, the stuff that helps us prepare ourselves to grow. And this week, We're going to begin to look at the how, the now what. We've done all this work. We've done all this preparation. Where do we start to actually do the changing? And we're going to begin by talking about the box of independence, which we have to clear out of our spiritual houses to get back to the essential of dependence. In other words... It's the move away from seeing ourselves as self-sufficient, as totally on our own, towards a deep reliance and dependence on God to heal us and to transform us, which is really easy to say, but really hard to actually do. I think it's hard and confusing for a couple of reasons. I think the first reason is many of us don't actually want to get rid of the idea that we are independent. I think we live in a culture that tells us that dependence is often a sign of immaturity, weakness, sometimes even moral failure. So we let that bleed into our faith. We develop a spirituality of independence. It's uh, it's all me. It's my power. I just need to fix myself. Which means when brokenness comes along, what do we do? We white-knuckle. Well, it's not about relying on God. I just need to try a little harder. If you know anything about white knuckling, it doesn't really work. It usually just builds up and it builds up and then it comes out in a way that's probably more damaging than it would have been on its own. Or we go the other way. I think the other side is that we hear a lot about dependence, about relying on God, about what it means to wait on God in church language, but we never actually learn what that means. We never actually learn how to do that. So we end up having the desire to heal, and then we're just like, okay, God. Light, lightning bolt? Like, can you heal me now, God? Anyone else been there before? And we end up just waiting and waiting and waiting, and we never actually change. And honestly, when I came to the church in my early 20s, when I was really broken, I started talking to churchy people And they would start talking to me about the process of discipleship and healing, and I was left feeling really confused. Is it my responsibility to fix myself, or do I need God to do the fixing? 
And I usually was left feeling a little bit like this when they talked to me about it. I'm going to be your instincts. Kunu will be your instincts. Don't do anything. Don't try to surf. Don't do it. The less you do, the more you do. Let's see it pop up. Pop it up. That's not it at all. Do less. Get down. Try less. Do it again. Pop up. Nope. Too slow. Do less. Pop up. Pop up. Too, you're doing too much. Do less. Pop down. Pop up now. Stop. Get down. Get down there. Remember, don't do anything. Nothing. Pop up. Well, you no, you got to do more than that because you're just laying. You, it looks like you're boogie boarding. Just do it. Feel it. Pop up. Yeah, that wasn't quite it, but we're going to figure it out out there. Let's go surfing. Come on. Everybody's learning how. Come on. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, <laughs> maybe you haven't, but I've had so many conversations about the spiritual life that have felt exactly like that. <laughs> and ultimately, I think this dependence thing is confusing because more than any other move we make in the spiritual life, it is grounded in a paradox. The definition of a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that, when investigated and explained, may prove to be well-founded or true. You see, I think spiritual dependence is a chicken or an egg proposition. It is a paradox. It asks the question, do we fix ourselves? Do we have to do things to heal, or does God do the healing? And the answer is just yes both and. You see, I believe at the root of this essential is a paradoxical truth. God is the only one who can heal the deepest brokenness of my life, because I can't do that on my own. I have to depend on him to transform me, and yet I have only ever experienced healing when I have taken the steps to open myself to what he is doing in the world. I've had to make moves to get caught up in that flow. And it seems heady, but I actually experienced this, this paradox in a really concrete and tangible way when I was in Uganda two weeks ago. And you see, one of the things that they do at this organization that we support is they have a sewing school. It's a, a school that basically brings in people from the surrounding villages, and it teaches them to sew. And if they graduate, it gives them a sewing machine and some material, and it sends them back to their home community to start a business, to start growing the economy. It's a great program. So we were coming to check it out, and they thought it would be fun to teach us how to use a sewing machine. And it wasn't quite like this one. There was a wheel. There was no motor. So it's like a bike chain, almost. And it goes to the floor, and then there were pedals. And what you would do is you'd spin the wheel, and you'd start moving the pedals, and it would make the sewing machine work. And I'm like, that looks so unbelievably easy. And I was so unbelievably terrible at making this thing work. You see, I would come to it, and I'm like, it doesn't seem that hard. There's this like, 15-year-old girl showing me. She, she laughs at me a lot in this story. <laughs> and I would spin the wheel, and at first, I just like, didn't move my feet, because I was just like, it's just going to start going. It didn't. It jammed up. It needed energy, apparently, to operate. That's what the pedals are for. So I overcompensate. I spin the wheel, and this time, I start moving my feet really fast. I try to force it, and it jams up the machine, and it doesn't work. And I go back and forth and back and forth between these extremes, and like I said, she is laughing at me, 
and like, <laughs> I'm feeling like a fool. I'm just ready to quit. But you see, there was a moment when it just clicked. I spun the wheel, and I began to move my feet gently. And as I felt the machine start to ramp up, there was a moment when it just started to hum. I just felt the rhythm of it. And what I did is I just matched my feet to that rhythm. I just got into what it was doing, and then it just started to run. You see, what I found was there was a moment that I had to do things to start the machine, but for it to keep running, I had to at some point merge with its movement and catch on to its rhythm, or else it would jam. See, what I learned was that if I tried to force it, or if I didn't do enough, it wouldn't work. And I was still terrible at the sewing part. Couldn't keep a straight line with the needle. But in this moment, our, our movements almost blurred together, and it just ran. And I think that this hit me this week because it's this kind of metaphor that gets at this essential of dependence. I think it's God and us, both and. We must make the moves to open ourselves to him so he can make the moves that only he can do. And I think what prevents us from being caught in that flow more often than not is independence. I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And I either don't do enough or I try to force it. And either way, I never change. So this is the move that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what it looks like to move from independence to dependence, and we're going to do it through my favorite story in the entire Bible. It's a small story that's actually really easy to miss at the end of chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, and it's about this blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Now, to understand why I love blind Bartimaeus, the story you need to see where it falls in the larger context of the gospel. You see, because what comes before and after this story is fascinating. In terms of what comes after it, blind Bartimaeus is the very last text and story before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 11 for Passover. Who knows why that's important? It's important because Jerusalem is where Jesus is going to come into conflict over the course of a week with the religious elite, over things like the forgiveness of sin, over things like mercy and grace, over things like change. And at the end of that week, he is going to get crucified as a rebel on a Roman cross. You see, the arrival in Jerusalem is the absolute climax of Mark's gospel account because it's the moment where Jesus the Messiah, Israel's long-awaited king, must give his life to forgive the world. And this is the story that Mark places right before that happens. But what comes before blind Bartimaeus is really interesting too. You see, it's also a climax of a smaller section of the story. Between chapter 8 and chapter 10, Mark tells us what discipleship looks like. And blind Bartimaeus is the climactic story of this section on what it means to follow Jesus. And it's this amazing story that begins at the end of chapter 8, where Jesus, for the first time, tells one of his disciples that he is the Messiah, which is a big deal. 
Like I said, it's the long-awaited king that these Jewish people have been waiting for. And he's finally acknowledged, I am the one that's going to come and make things right. And then immediately after that, Jesus starts to tell his disciples that the Messiah is going to have to die in Jerusalem. But if you know anything about the Messiah in first century Judaic thought, that's not how the story was supposed to go. The Messiah was supposed to be a warrior king. The Messiah was supposed to defeat the Romans. The Messiah was supposed to do everything but die. And this kicks off a two-chapter section that climaxes with blind Bartimaeus that is fascinating to me, that has caught my attention for years and is absolutely heartbreaking. You see, for the next two chapters, we see Jesus repeatedly trying to teach his disciples what it means to be in his kingdom, to be his disciple, how the cross changes everything about what it means to get caught in the flow of what God's doing in the world. He tries to teach them how the cross, it changes our values. It turns everything about how we live upside down. Suddenly, we replace vengeance with forgiveness. Suddenly, in God's world, judgment with grace. Pride with humility. Power with self-sacrificial service. This is what Jesus tries to get his disciples to see, and what makes it heartbreaking is that over and over and over again, in this two-chapter section, we see the same cycle play out. Jesus predicts his death. Jesus teaches on what the cross means, what it means for the Messiah to be a servant, and then those closest to Jesus get it absolutely wrong. What we see in this section is those that we would expect to get this discipleship thing right, this Jesus thing right, the people closest to him just keep missing the point. We see people like Peter, the number one apostle. Jesus comes to him and says, the Messiah is going to have to give his life. And Peter says, I don't know about your theology, Jesus. And it says he actually rebukes Jesus, which is not the best thing to do. And there's this heartbreaking moment when she's like, Peter, you're missing it. There's a story of a rich man who comes to Jesus, and it actually says he's incredibly faithful to God's commandments. It even says that Jesus loves him. And yet, when Jesus says, all you have to do to follow me is to give up your wealth, the man can't do it. There's a story, a couple actually, of the other disciples coming to Jesus and saying, hey, is there any way I can turn this kingdom of God thing into me having a little bit more power? Maybe a little bit more esteem, maybe a little bit more leverage over other people. Any way I can sit at the right hand of God? Each time, Jesus tries to point them back to the cross. He tries to point them back to what this life with him is like, and each time they miss it. And at the end of this section, we're left kind of feeling hopeless in the Gospel of Mark. We're like, if these people don't get it, these people who have been walking with him for years can't figure this out, who will? I mean, if the disciples don't know what discipleship's about, can anybody? It feels like that dark moment in the Gospel. Until at the very last second, we find this small story about a blind beggar as the last story that we will hear before Jesus arrives as the Messiah in Jerusalem. And I think this is climactic for Mark because for Mark, blind Bartimaeus is the first person in his whole gospel who gets it right. He gets what this discipleship thing really means. 
We're just going to dive into the text that begins in Mark 10, 46. They came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus and Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. How condescending. Uh, He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received sight and followed Jesus down the road. So Mark holds this story up as the defining example of what it means to be a disciple. And there's a lot to unpack here, but I want to start with some few observations about why. First, let's start with the obvious. In light of everyone who has already failed at discipleship, do we think that blind Bartimaeus is who we'd expect to get it right? No. In fact, what I would say is that in the first century worldview, he's the last person we'd expect to get it right. And there's a couple of reasons. First, blindness in the first century was often understood as a curse. It was one of those afflictions that would happen to people, and the idea was that you were struck blind because you had done something wrong. Or, if you were born blind, it was because of a generational curse. Someone in your family line had messed up so badly that his ancestors were now paying for it. Second, let's move to poverty. You see, in the first century, poverty and riches were often associated with blessing and favor from God. The rich were people who had been blessed by God. They were shown his favor. The poor were often seen as those, even if they hadn't done something wrong, they were just simply outside of God's favor. More than that, in Israel at this time, they were what we call an honor culture. An honor culture is one that places hierarchy and honor at the top of their value system. Do you think begging was considered an honorable and noble pursuit in an honor culture? No, it's the bottom of the totem pole. And then there's the fact, and this is a little more subtle, but blind Bartimaeus actually also has horrible theology. He gets his scriptures wrong. You see, there are two titles that he uses for Jesus, son of David and rabbi. Now, son of David was a political title. It meant to be the son in the family line of King David, an Old Testament figure. Rabbi was a religious teacher in Jewish culture. And these are both true about Jesus, but there's one rub. Neither of them were associated with healing in the Bible. At no point would you see a rabbi or a son of David in the Old Testament being associated with being able to heal. There were other characters in the Testaments that were able to heal, but it wasn't the son of David and it wasn't a rabbi. So what he shows when he cries out with these titles, he actually doesn't know the Bible very well. In fact, he kind of gets it wrong. And we kind of get to understand why the crowd rebukes him, why they tell him to be quiet, because quite frankly, blind Bartimaeus is a blind, possibly cursed, definitely poor, theologically ignorant beggar. Which means that in their worldview, he has no business crying out to the king, the Messiah, the prophet, the rabbi. But blind Bartimaeus persists. 
He cries out again, son of David, have mercy on me. And there's this beautiful scene that takes place. I think everything slows down. And I think it's really cool. What does blind Bartimaeus do? He throws off his cloak and he moves towards Jesus. And I think you can miss this if you aren't paying attention. You see, if you lived in the ancient world, your cloak was very important to you. If you're walking long distances, if you're sometimes sleeping outside. But if you were a beggar in the first century, it was actually even more important. See, a beggar's cloak was their livelihood. A beggar's cloak was everything. They didn't have a place to keep what they owned, so their cloaks would be lined with pockets in which they would keep whatever money they had raised that day. And if you're a beggar living on a street, that means that in those pockets is your meal ticket, your only hope of having shelter that evening, the only chance you had of getting help. And if you couldn't get shelter, it was also your only source of warmth. This is literally blind Bartimaeus' only money and security in this world. And what does he do when called? He throws it off. He doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't pillage through his pockets. He doesn't fold it up nice and neat. He doesn't hide it away first. He just throws it off and moves towards Jesus. Falls on his knees. He says he wants to see, and he's healed. And then what does he do? You might miss this too. It says he follows Jesus down the road. The road to where? The road to chapter 11, to Jerusalem, to the cross. Finally, someone gets it right. You see, blind Bartimaeus gets it right because I think he has learned what spiritual dependence means. I think many of us and the disciples talk about wanting dependence, but I think most of us, if we're honest, aren't willing to actually clean out the box of independence to learn that. I think for most of us, We have one or two things in our lives, our own little cloaks that we hold on to when things get hard, when things start to get a little cold, when I start to feel a little weak and I want to feel strong, when I start to feel a little unsafe or that I need help. We all have that thing that we depend on first and foremost, don't we? We all have something that we've known for a long time. And when it starts to get hard, we go straight to it. Because when things get tough, you go to what you know. You go to what's comfortable. You go to the habits you've learned. And I think we just hold on to these cloaks because they let us feel a little bit falsely independent. I think we hold on to them even if deep down they're making us sick and they don't work. Because at the end of the day, we'd rather hold on to the devil we know than to trust the unknown of dependence on God. You see, the hard part about getting back to dependence, in my opinion, is that it's always unknown. Because to get to dependence, we have to be willing to cast off what we've always known, who we always thought we were. Because that's usually in some way tied up with the strongest crutch or the warmest cloak we've got. I think that's why for Mark, it's the people who are the insiders, the rich, the powerful, the self-righteous, who can't seem to get discipleship right. And it's not because they're like morally messed up, it's just that they have more junk 
They have more things that they've learned to depend on instead of God. They have more sources of false independence that they haven't gotten rid of. And I also think that's why for Mark, it's the broken, it's the poor, it's the hopeless sinners, it's the marginalized who he sees as getting it because they know they need help. I think they get it because quite frankly, they're all out of cloaks and they don't have any more crutches. Life, in some way for them, ripped out any delusion of independence. And they haven't held on to anything too tightly that they wouldn't give up to be healed. And that is why blind Bartimaeus is so profound to me. Because I think more than any story in the Bible, he teaches me what this path from independence to dependence looks like. I think that he shows me how to live this out a little bit. First, the story of blind Bartimaeus absolutely gets the paradox of dependence right. Jesus does the healing, but we need to be willing to move into proximity with the one who heals. The blind Bartimaeus cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Theologically incorrect, unlearned, perceived to be out of place, but defined by a radical awareness that he needs help, that he needs Jesus. You see, this humbles me. I think there are times in my life where I've known all the right things about Jesus, about the Bible, but if you looked at my attitudes or my actions, I didn't rely on him at all. I certainly didn't depend on him to change me. The first step is humility. The recognition that we need help, that our independence is not the solution, it's part of the sickness. And we'll only get back to what will heal us if we can clear that out. And then what does blind Bartimaeus do in the story? Does he cry out and just sit there? He moves towards the one who heals and the one who calls. In Mark's eyes, it's not the one who checks off the right boxes that's getting discipleship right. It's the one who is moving towards Jesus. It's the one who could say, when they look at their heart and their life, I am one step closer to the Messiah today than I was yesterday. See, for Mark, discipleship isn't a complicated checklist. It's quite simple. It's two questions. Do you know you need help? And what direction are you moving in? Second, and this is the hardest part for me, I think it teaches us that with spiritual dependence, healing only comes after the surrendering not before it. You see, Bartimaeus shows us that healing and discipleship and dependence are all, they're all interwoven. But we only experience them after we are willing to let go of what's holding us back. When we're willing to let go of what we've always known. When we're willing to let go of that last spiritual cloak and crutch that we've held on to. Blind Bartimaeus gives up everything when he closes off his cloak. And it's not just financial. What are the two things we know about blind Bartimaeus' identity? He is blind and he is a beggar. What are the two things blind Bartimaeus no longer has at the end of his story? Blindness and his beggar coke. I don't think blind Bartimaeus just gave up his security. I think he gave up his identity. I think he was willing to cast off all that we know about him. This isn't just a few bucks. It's a willingness to let go of his identity and then a deep dependence on Jesus to give him a new, truer one. 
to let Jesus define who he will be by letting go of who he's always been. I think that's the hardest step for me. Which leads us to our final truth from this story. I think dependence is only learned by following Jesus to the cross, by falling down, and it often feels a little bit like dying. You see, the last line of the story is that blind Bartimaeus follows him down the road to the cross, which we must remember. I think a lot of us want the Christianity thing to be all about the resurrection without any of the crucifixion. And what I have learned is that I only experience new life when I'm willing to die a little bit. Who I thought I was. Who I thought I was supposed to be. It's the death of ourself. Which is important because I think for many of us, clearing out the box of independence is going to feel like humiliation and it's going to feel a little bit like that dying. I was told by a wise person that we only learn humility through humiliation. That our ego never chooses to humble itself. It has to be shown. I was also taught once that we only learn dependence by the falling down, by the having to come face to face with the reality of our life because, quite frankly, we have nothing else to lean on. And we can let this break us. At times, I've let this falling down break me. But we can also do something else. I think we can follow the cross to the resurrection. We can recognize it but the falling down is the necessary cleaning out of that box of independence. And if we're willing to do it well, we can get back to what true dependence is meant to be on a God who heals. And I want to close by getting practical for a second. So I want to close by talking about what dependence looks like. I don't want to be like the churchy people. I don't want to be like Paul Rudd and not explain how you start to do this. Because I think there's some very practical tools that are incredibly simple, but maybe not always easy. I want to begin by saying that to start getting towards dependence, we need to be willing to find ourselves in the blind Bartimaeuses of the Bible. Especially when it comes to our last three essentials of this series, self-honesty, confession, release. You see, blind Bartimaeus got those three things right. He was honest about his brokenness. He knew what it was. Have mercy on me, I am blind. He confessed it to Jesus. I want to see. But more than that, he had done the work of releasing it. He was ready to throw off the cloak and to be healed. And that's where his dependence was able to start. So I think for many of us, we have to do these three steps if we're going to get to learn what dependence looks like. So we start by naming the things. We start by telling someone else. And we start doing the work of getting ready to let them go. So I'll just ask you, what is your cloak? And what is your blindness? And some of you maybe in this room are like, bam, I know what it is. I'm a messed up person. But some of you may not know what those crutches, what that cloak, what that blindness is. And I would just give you some diagnostic questions if you're willing to hear them. First, think about what you do in crisis. When you're afraid or when your emotions run high, what do you do before you have a chance to think? How do you react? What do you depend on to feel normal again? What do you depend on to feel safe again? What do you depend on the quickest? 
Maybe you relate to some of our characters. Maybe you relate to Peter. We're all for following Jesus up until it means I have to give up control. Up until it means that I might have to change my plans for the future, how I thought things might go. Up until the moment that I have to let go of some of my self-centeredness. And it's not about me. Or maybe it's the rich man. It's wealth, it's comfort, it's security, it's a guarantee they are going to be okay. Maybe it's the disciples in the crowds. It's one of the many forms of pride. I think a really warm cloak that I have worn many nights is judgmentalism. When I'm feeling insecure about myself, well, at least I'm not that person. It's comparison. It's self-righteousness. It's going to become cloaks too. Or maybe it's something that isn't even in our story. It's isolation. It's an emotional cycle, codependency, addiction, substances. We all have a cloak that we cling to when the night gets dark. And healing is on the other side of letting it go. So once we've named it, once we've confessed it, once we've released it, we start talking about real, tangible steps. What I would say is tools for living this out daily, weekly, and monthly. And they fall under three major buckets for me. The first is it starts with growing in our dependence on God through the spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, time-tested, thousands of years old spiritual activities. You're not the only person who can get by without doing this and still grow spiritually. Got bad news. Prayer, meditation, Bible reading, service to others, self-reflection. You see, we don't just do these for funsies in the church. We do them because they work. We do them because when we commit to them daily, our lives begin to change. You see, I don't think many of us are willing to do the healing if it means we have to change our daily practices. I can tell you that 99% of my conversations with people on things like meditation stop when I tell them they have to wake up a little earlier. It's like, oh, whoa, I'll go to the cross, but if I have to get up before 7.30, that's just too much, Jesus. But we need to change our steps if we're going to walk in a new direction. That's just a reality of this life. Changing the path starts with the changing of one step towards something different. What is one small thing you can add to your life? Just start moving somewhere else. Is it prayer? Is it reading scripture? Is it five minutes of meditation? Second, the other bucket is we need to seek out mentors and guides. I think a lot of us don't reach out to people who we know might be able to help us learn the way. You see, spiritual dependence isn't just a me and God thing. It's also learning to rely on the people in the church to show us how to get to where we have never been before. Blind Bartimaeus saw something in Jesus that he knew might lead to healing, and he moved towards it. The church is the body of Christ, and I think we need to be that example too. I think we need to be willing to show people the way who are seeking to grow. So I can tell you that I saw Christ in a, in a person first before I ever read about him in a book. Are we willing to be that to someone else? Some of you are in this room and you need to step up as guides. You're just a little bit farther along spiritually than some people in your life. And you just need to offer 
to help them get there. Reach out. Some of us, we know we want to grow in an area, and we just haven't taken that step to the person that we've seen a little bit ahead of us to say, show me how. Do you have someone in your life that's a little more patient? Who's a little bit further along in the prayer thing? Who's a little less angry? Who seems to have a little bit more peace with his circumstances? What's stopping you from saying, how do I get there? Because that's our responsibility as a body to do for each other. And finally, we need to share our life in community. The spiritual growth thing is too hard to do alone. It just is. It's too much cleaning out. It's too much emotional baggage. It's too much weight. We need to be in a community so people can help us carry the load. Why aren't you in a growth group? Why aren't you meeting with people regularly as a spiritual discipline, not because it's a burden or because you have to, but because if you commit to it, you'll see your life change. I don't know about you, but the, big, the, the warmest cloaks in my life, the anger, the pride, the judgmentalism, seem to have a way of getting back into my hand when I'm in isolation. I throw them off, and I'm like, I'm done with being angry. And then I start getting a little more disconnected and isolated, and before I knew it, it's right back. It's because I need people to make this growth thing happen. So I want to close by returning to the sewing machine. You see, I think it's a funny story. It's a, it's a silly metaphor, but I also kept coming back to it this week because it hits home exactly what we're talking about. You see, I think some of us in this room have never even spun the wheel. They've never even taken the first step to make it work. And what I would ask you is what would it look like to change your routine just a little bit? to start taking one practice to get the spiritual thing moving. There are other people in this room that they've spun the wheel, but they just don't move their feet because they don't have a 15-year-old sassy teenager telling them how, telling them, don't do this, do this, try this. What would it look like to get a guide and a mentor to say, this is how you make it work? And then some of us, we spin it and we just try to force it because we just want to do it on our own. And quite frankly, the spiritual life will just make you sick in isolation. So what would it mean to join a community? To get help, to know that you don't have to work this thing by yourself. Because I think when we can unpack this box of independence and get to the dependence thing, and we can get it right, what I have found is my life starts to move in ways I never would have imagined. Things outside of myself begin to change me. Because what I find is that there is a God who is bigger than me, with movements bigger than me, that if I would just let go, is willing to sweep me up and take me with him. To the cross, but also to new life. Amen.